which had already been ordered simply because the president did not want to appear too anxious for peace. Then, in December, the president learned that Trist, after initially quarreling bitterly with Winfield Scott, had become a warm friend of the Whig general-in-chief, and that the two of them had planned to use Scott's war fund to buy a treaty from the Mexican peace commissioners. It was the bane of Polk's presidency that his best generals were Whigs, whom he hated more than Mexicans, and he had no intention of countenancing a democratic peace commissioner who would collaborate with them. Polk, now thoroughly aroused by the reports of the use of bribery, had begun to plan the recall of Scott and was restlessly awaiting the return of his dismissed emissary. Then the incredible happened. On January 15th, a 65-page letter arrived from Trist, who had not received the message of October 25th recalling him until he was already deep in negotiations for a treaty. He knew the administration wanted a treaty. He thought it was within his power to achieve peace and his moral duty not to waste this power. He believed that the letter recalling him was not binding because it was written without awareness of the circumstances in Mexico City. Thus the chief clerk, who had been appointed partly because of his expected pliancy, refused to be recalled, and wrote on December 6th to inform the government that in his capacity as a private citizen he was continuing to negotiate a treaty of peace. The administration could use this treaty or not, as it saw fit. For good measure, Trist lectured the president. He hinted that Polk planned a wrongful war of conquest. He implied that he and General Scott would save the administration in spite of itself— He denounced Polk's close friend Gideon Pillow as an intriguer of incomprehensible baseness of character. When Polk read this, his anger overflowed, and words of choking fury poured out on the pages of his diary. His dispatches arrogant, impudent, and very insulting to his government, and even personally offensive to the president. It is manifest to me that he has become the tool of General Scott— I have never in my life felt so indignant. He is destitute of honor or principle, a very base man. Polk wrote these words on January 15th. Exactly five weeks later, Mr. Trist's treaty arrived on his doorstep. For two days, the president fought against the inevitable, but in fact he had no choice, and he knew it. For the Mexican War was highly unpopular throughout a large part of the country— It was regarded as a war of unjustified aggression on behalf of the evil institution of slavery, and Polk was denounced as a warmonger. The House of Representatives, under Whig control, had actually voted a resolution declaring its belief that the war had been unnecessarily and unconstitutionally begun by the President of the United States. The public was yearning for peace— and the treaty was, after all, an exact fulfillment of Polk's own terms as formulated ten months previously. He diagnosed his own predicament and stated it forcefully to his cabinet. If the treaty was now to be made, I should demand more territory, perhaps to make the Sierra Madre the line, yet it was doubtful whether this could be ever obtained by the consent of Mexico. I looked, too, to the consequences of its rejection— A majority of one branch of Congress is opposed to my administration. They have falsely charged that the war was brought on and is continued by me with a view to the conquest of Mexico, 
and if I were now to reject a treaty made upon my own terms, as authorized in April last, with the unanimous approbation of the Cabinet, the probability is that Congress would not grant either men or money to prosecute the war. Should this be the result, the army now in Mexico would be constantly wasting and diminishing in numbers, and I might at last be compelled to withdraw them, and thus lose the two provinces of New Mexico and Upper California, which were ceded to the U.S. by this treaty. Should the opponents of my administration succeed in carrying the next presidential election, the great probability is that the country would lose all the advantages secured by this treaty. There was nothing to do but to send Trist's document to the Senate. The Senate received the treaty on February 23rd, but did not immediately begin deliberations upon it, for John Quincy Adams had been stricken on the floor of the House on the 22nd, and congressional business was suspended until after his funeral. But then the Senate actually...